Welcome. <laughs> this is going to be a fun Sunday. I'm really excited to be here and, and talk through this. My, my name is Steve Marshman, and the roadmap for today to help you out is going to talk about these chapters that Meredith just read. And then next week, just so you know the plan, we're going to be doing about two chapters a week. Next, next week will be chapter 10 and chapter 11. And what I would really like you to do, especially for next week, because those are actually in some ways more challenging than this week. They're not as bizarre. But go to this website that we are going to sound like a broken record when we say it over and over every weekend. But the website is three words, a AREvelationConversation.com, AREvelationConversation.com. And listen to the podcasts that cover chapter 10 and 11. There's actually three of them for next week because they're, they're a little bit uh, more in depth, but they're, but they're also a little bit shorter. So please do that. Now, back to today, chapter 8 and chapter 9. If you are just a little bit familiar with the book of Revelation, you know we've just jumped into the deep end of the pool, right? I mean, come on, demon locusts, demon calvary, you know, locusts with all sorts of just crazy, fantastic imagery. And if, you, if you've read that before and you listen to that, you know, okay, this... This is challenging, and we talked about that last week, that it is challenging, so we need to approach it with a ton of humility. But I also said last week that it's super doable. We, we could understand this. We can unpack that. So that's my assignment for today, is to help make some sense out of that crazy thing. You guys excited? I, I am. And we're also going to talk about God's wrath, by the way. How about that for a little icing on the cake, right? So this is going to be a fun Sunday, even though it's going to be, you know, a little bit of a bizarre passage. So first thing... If you're familiar with the entire Bible, when you heard those first four trumpets particularly, your brain might have said, I've, I've heard something like that before. And, it, and if you're thinking that, you're right. It's the Exodus motif. This is the story out of Exodus repeated in a different form. So if you remember the ten plagues of the Exodus story, I'm just going to give you a quick summary of what that's all about. In a word, it's redemption. That whole story is about redemption. And what's happening is God decides he's going to redeem or rescue the people of Israel from Pharaoh's evil grip. And Pharaoh is like an archetype of the evil one, Satan, in that story. And the ten plagues culminate in this last plague that has to do with the Passover lamb. And that may be a familiar image to many of you. And, and what that's all about is God's final judgment bringing justice on human evil in this in that story it's pharaoh and there's also going to be a ton of mercy and god provides a substitute this passover lamb substitute and if, and if you know that story the blood of the passover lamb was put on the doorpost and the israelites were passed over but here's what i want you to remember about that story for today's purposes if you remember that story what happened to pharaoh at the end did Pharaoh repent? No. And, and just pause and think about the, the magnificence of that. Ten eye-popping plagues, and Pharaoh still says no to God. Now that, that might be a little bit mind-blowing to you, but as we talk about that in just a little bit, maybe not so much. So, as usual, what John sees in the Revelation vision is a modification of Old Testament imagery. And that's, that's what we see here. Now, these are trumpets, right? So in, in the Exodus story, it was given through Moses, and Moses told us the story. Here we're given the story through this trumpet announcements 
that are announcing something, right? That's what trumpets do often in the Old Testament. So what are they announcing today in this story? God's wrath and God's judgment. And that's what makes this message kind of heavy sounding. And it is, but we'll bring light to it in just a second. So what's the purpose of his judgment? Well, there's a couple purposes, but one is to obviously bring justice, divine justice on evil. But it's also a warning to all of us. It's a warning that God's holy, uh, his, his holy kingdom requires us to repent for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So just like God gave Pharaoh 10 chances to repent, we're going to see here multiple chances, multiple warnings through the trumpet judges. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize them just real briefly. You can go listen to the podcast if you want some more details, and we go through it line by line. But the, the first trumpet is hail and fire mixed with blood thrown to earth. And it's a little different than the Exodus uh, plague because fire is added here in John's vision. And fire, if you remember your Old Testament very much at all, is often a symbol of judgment. So this, this trumpet vision is emphasizing the judgment. And then a huge mountain all ablaze is thrown into the sea. A great star blazing like a torch lands in the rivers. And then a third of the sun, moon, and stars turn dark. And that's a clue, by the way, that I think this is sim- sim- uh, symbolic because how do you actually have a third of the night turn dark? I mean, how does that work? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol. But the thing to recognize about these first four trumpets is they all deal with the natural world, the created world, right? It's the earth and the sea and the rivers and the stars, sun, moon, and stars, and the heavens, if you will. So why why that why why does god give john the vision that way well this is about his creation and the point one of the points we're supposed to take out of this is this is god's creation he is the creator capital c creator and because of that he could do whatever he wants with his creation so we need to ask what does god want to do with his creation when it turns evil and sins and there's a bunch of darkness around us well the answer is he wants to redeem it he wants to redeem the earth and in the whole story of the bible from front to end is going back to where god originally planned genesis 1 and 2 where it was there we're going to return to that by the end of the book of revelation so if you're a note taker write this down god wants to reestablish the rule of heaven on earth and that might sound a little bit like the lord's prayer and it is for those who know the, the Lord's Prayer, it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what does it say? Your kingdom come, your will be done, your rule be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the summary of the first four trumpets. And then we get into the fifth and sixth trumpets. And we're going to spend a little bit longer time on those. Just like in the book, the first four trumpets come really, really fast. And then the fifth trumpet and sixth trumpet stretches out a little bit so the fifth and sixth trumpet are kind of like a pair the first four trumpets are a set and this fifth and sixth one are a pair and i'm going to read you a quote from one of my favorite commentators grant osborne and this is this is what he says about the fifth and sixth trumpet he says the fifth and sixth trumpets are closely intertwined the entire desire of the fallen angels is to torture and kill all who are made in the image of God. That's what Grant Osborne says. That's the purpose of these visions, is to let us know, to make us aware. 
and friends, brothers and sisters, 26 West Church, a big part of today is to make us aware. And what are we being made aware of? That there's a lot of demonic things going on in the world we live in. Now, this is not a new thought. This is not a brand new thought in the book of Revelation. If we go back to Acts chapter 26, you don't need to turn there, but Paul is relaying a time where Jesus gave him instructions. And in that passage, this is what Paul says, quoting what Jesus said to him. It says, I am sending you to them. So Jesus is sending Paul to them to do what? And there's a slide going to come up. Uh, hopefully, and it's going to summarize this passage for you. It says, I'm sending you to them to do what? Open their eyes, open our eyes, and turn them from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And why? Just because it's a fun thing to do on Sunday? No, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's the pattern of how we enter the kingdom of heaven and get saved by Jesus, our Lord. First, we have to open our eyes and realize we need salvation. And that means turning away from the dark world, turning towards the light, turning away from Satan, and turning toward God. In Ephesians chapter 6, there's this famous passage. Many of you, if you've been to church more than a year or two, have probably heard this. Paul says this. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against, and listen to this, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. So the fifth and sixth trumpet, what they, what they do is they depict this incredibly depraved world with spiritual forces of evil all around us. And I just want to ask you right now, do you believe that to be true? Yeah, you've watched the news. You've seen that we now, li- I, I'm describing the world we live in right now is just a big bowl of anger. It seems like everybody's angry about everything. But church, that's our opportunity to look different. And to, in the midst of all the depravity, in the midst of all the sin and lying and stealing and cheating, we can look good. We could look hopeful and we could point people to Jesus One of the things that we have to have to realize from the story of the Bible that judgment alone, hear me, judgment alone does not get people into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because judgment alone does not lead to repentance. We see that with Pharaoh and we see that here in just a second. And that's something we have to be aware of. There's another solution to the problem Come next week. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get to it today. But come next week to see what the solution to that problem is. But for now, this is a wake-up call to open our eyes. So let's look at the fifth trumpet uh, just a little bit closer. If you're taking notes, write down demon locusts. That's the summary of the fifth trumpet, demon locusts. We know there are demons because they come out of the abyss. And the abyss is the abode of the demonic. So these these are demon locusts. Interestingly, notice that they're told not to do what locusts normally do. If you're around any place that has locusts, what do they do? They eat the vegetation. And here it says, nope, they're not going to eat the vegetation. And they're also told, this is important, not to harm those who have the seal of God. Follower Jesus, that's you. God prevents the demon locusts from harming 
those who have the seal of God. But that means who's left? The demon locusts go after those who have rejected God. The demon locusts go after the demon followers. Isn't that incredibly depraved? They go after their own. This is crazy. How bad is it? Look at chapter 9, verse 6. Speaking of the followers of evil, those folks, it's bad. It says, during those days, people will seek death, but they'll not find it. They'll long to die, but death will elude them. And what about the demon locusts themselves? Verse 7 in chapter 9 says that they're prepared for battle. The demon locusts, they're ready to go. They're ready to fight. And who's their king? Verse 11, I love this description of the evil one. The king is the destroyer. And that's what the dark world wants to do to us as followers of Jesus. Wants to destroy us, wants to tear us down. Well, if that weren't depressing enough, then we get the sixth trumpet. And if you're taking notes, write down demon Calvary, because that's all about the demon Calvary. And the, the phrasing there, if you do the math, it equates to a 200 million strong demonic Calvary. Now, in the 21st century, 200 million, that doesn't sound all that big. That's about two-thirds of the United States. But this is a Calvary. This is an army. In the first century, the Roman army, which was the biggest, baddest army around, they had, most people think, around 250,000, a quarter of a million. So you're comparing a quarter of a million with 200 million. Now, I don't think it's literal. I think it's symbolic. But the point is, this is, an, in, in the vision, apparently an unstoppable force. It will be stopped. Hold on to that. But for now, it appears unstoppable and look at what verse 17 says the horses and the riders I saw in my vision looked like this their breastplates were fiery red dark blue and yellow as sulfur the heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions in the first century lions were the feared creature and out of their mouths came fire smoke and sulfur you know so this demonic calvary and oh by the way the calvary in the first century culture was the biggest baddest weapon Today, we might think intercontinental ballistic missile carrying a nuclear warhead. In the first century, it's, it's, it's whoever has the most horses and chariots, they win. That was the big warrior weapon in that century. So you read this and you go, this is bad. And that's what you're supposed to feel. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to have Meredith read it over us. We're not going to do that every week because we don't have time. But this was a type of passage you want you to feel the emotions and the, and the weight of it. But, but what happens to the survivors? Because a bunch are destroyed. But what happens to the survivors? Verse 20 says, they did not repent. What? You saw all this and you don't repent of what? They don't repent of the work of their hands. They don't repent of demon worship. They don't repent of murders, magic arts, sexual immoralities, or theft. Oh, my goodness. So at first we have to go, uh, this is one of the craziest stories of the Bible. But then I want to just stop and pause and say, reality check. This is emotional if you're really into the story. I hope you are. And you have all sorts of questions from this story. And I was there with you. When I first started really getting in this book, I got to hear and went, uh-oh. I don't know if I'm ever going to figure this out. Because on one hand, you say, God sounds like this horrific, evil, mean God. But then on the other hand, you go, well, it's divine justice. The ones who got destroyed are the ones who rejected the Savior. So, so maybe 
that's okay. And another question is the whole question of symbolic or literal. Is this literally happening or is this symbolic? Now, those are two different camps. This is where the humility comes in. I have friends, good friends, Jesus-loving friends that believe this is a literal vision. This is literally going to happen. And because of the imagery of a third destroyed, they have to believe that that's in the future. I'm not in that camp. I'm in the symbolic camp. Most leading scholars today are in the symbolic camp. And I believe this is just symbolic. It's a description of just how ugly and evil the dark world of Satan is. And I believe this type of warfare is going on right now in, in the unseen world. And why do I believe that? Because it's apocalyptic literature. And that's the way we're supposed to read apocalyptic literature. So it motivates us to look deeper and feel the weight of this cosmic conflict between God and Satan. But how do we wrap our minds around it? What, what do we do? And this is where we're going to go to now for the rest of our time. I think in my heart of hearts, the way we need to understand this passage is we actually need to look a little bit deeper into the character of God, specifically his wrath, the, the subject of God's wrath. I asked the nine o'clock, has anybody ever and I'm asking you, has anybody ever gone to church and the subject of the sermon was God's wrath? Anybody? One. I want to hear about that afterwards. One person has gone to a sermon and it's about God's wrath. Well, here you go. This is what this is going to be about. I'm, I'm hoping and I'm guessing this is really going to help you because my personal struggle as I came to this part of the revelation is I realized if I don't understand God's wrath, I'm not going to understand the book. So here we go. We're going to start with a real simple definition. It's always good to start with a simple definition and then go harder. This one's from Gary Brashears, and here's a definition of God's wrath. It's the response of love to betrayal and the hurting of innocent people. And when I read that, the first thing I, I notice that it seems like God's wrath is different than my wrath. And if you're thinking that, I think you're spot on. Not always. Sometimes we are righteously angry. But let's face it, most of the time when we're angry, we're also sinning and we're not righteously. So we when we're angry, we want to be righteous, or as Paul says, be angry and do not sin. But for all the times, most of the times probably when we're angry and we're sinning, that is what I want to talk about because God never sins. His anger, his wrath is always righteous. Now, quick side note, got to bring it up because it's, a, it's just a challenge in today's English, the word vengeance. In today's language, English language, vengeance really means often revenge. It's, it's what you do to get back at somebody who's hurt you. And that's not what biblical vengeance is about. When the Bible says God is a vengeful God, he's vengeance. In the Bible, vengeance is about justice. It's about the response of a loving father when wrong is done. So don't let the word vengeance trip you up. So let's get a little bit deeper quote. This one's from John Stott, uh, just a phenomenal writer. He writes this about uh, the wrath of God. He says, the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. Don't miss this part. God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger, injured vanity, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. Thank you, John Stott, for giving us that perspective. 
I had written this part of the message when I had this chance to live this out in my own life because we had a clogged toilet a couple weeks ago, the second one in about a month. The good news is the plunger was there at the ready, but the plunger didn't work this time. And now I got to really stop the toilet. So went to home after going online, you know, you got to Google it. How do you clear that? Go online. It says, go to Home Depot and buy a six-foot toilet auger. Did you know these existed? Well, we own one now. And they are probably great devices when they work correctly. But the one I bought was defective. So, oh, no, is right. <laughs> so picture me with this six-foot auger and it's stuck in the toilet. So now the toilet's plugged up and the auger's stuck in it. And guess what? I know this shocks you, but I got angry. Sinfully angry. I didn't say any bad words. Vicky can attest to that. But I was angry. But here's how silly and just plain stupid my anger was. I'm angry at an inanimate object. I'm angry at a toilet auger. 30 minutes earlier, I didn't even know they existed, and I'm, I'm just hot beaming mad at this thing because it's defective. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to return this thing, and I'm not going to clean it off. <laughs> but I didn't do that. I actually was able to fix it, and it, it all worked out. But it told me something about my anger. When I get angry, my love disappears. You see, our, our anger is completely different than God's anger. Our emotion of love versus anger is a lot like a coin, a coin that has two sides. And for us, this is not like God, but for us, you can see love Steve or anger Steve. And you generally don't get both. You can think of it as a light switch. The lights are on, love. I get angry, lights are off, love disappears. That, uh, I hope you hear this, I hope, hope, hope that you hear this. When God is angry, when God is wrathful, his love is still his primary essence. It who, it's who he is. We say God is love. We never say God is wrath. Does God get wrathful as a response to evil? Yes, but God remains love. He's always, always, always love. So in uh, a book I read, that has a fabulous title. It's titled, What About God's Wrath? Isn't that a great title? What About God's Wrath? By two, two folks named Kinghorn and Travis. They say this. God must, at times, be forceful and uncompromising in pressing on us the truth about ourselves. Given how creative and persistent we humans can be in avoiding these uncomfortable truths. Whoa, that, that's convicting to me. I can avoid the truth of my anger and my sin like nobody else. But God, in his love, he presses the truth of my sin into me. Why? Because that's what's going to lead me to repentance. And because God loves me and he wants me to repent. In this book, the, the two authors emphasize over and over and over that the goal of God's wrath, the goal of God's wrath is a benevolent one. It's a good thing. That might flip you upside down today. God's wrath is a good thing because he has a benevolent goal. He wants to press the truth into you so that you repent and restore your relationship with the Father who loves you and created you and wants to live forever and ever and ever with you. 
They point out in their book that there's this pattern throughout the entire Bible, not just Revelation, but the entire Bible, and it'll be up on a slide for you. It goes like this. God's wrath is always a last resort. Second, God's intent is not that his wrath would be the final word. And then lastly, God indeed abandons his wrathful pursuits when repentance occurs. So, so this is good news when God is wrathful. And, and it makes us uncomfortable because we don't like talking about wrathful God. But know this. This isn't the first time this has come up in the Bible. Th- this has been here before. In fact, it's probably in one of your, if you, if you read the Bible very much, lots of people like the Gospel of John. It's the Gospel of Love. It's where the most famous verse probably in all of the Bible comes up. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, so that we might have eternal life if we believe in him. That's fabulous. You've seen it on bumper stickers. I have. But read 20 more verses. Look at John 3, 36. You've not seen this on a bumper sticker. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. I'm with you. But whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. And my message to you today, friends, is that's not bad news. That's part of the good news of the gospel. God's wrath remains on those who reject Jesus so that they will repent. So that they'll, they'll be made aware and their eyes will open and they'll turn away from the darkness and the deception of Satan. And turn towards Jesus. Is it like the, it's just like the Exodus story. This is a story of redemption. But know this, know this, know this. God's wrath has a benevolent, loving goal. So when we see these parts of Revelation, and we're going to see more in the coming weeks, we have to reorient ourselves and, and get into the character of God. So in our last few minutes, I'm going to ask the, the worship band to come forward and uh, and. We're just going to stop and think. You could, you could close up your Bibles. You don't need them anymore. And just let's reflect on this. This is a hard passage. I know it is. It, it might take you a few days to digest what, what I've said. But our tendency is just to read something like that and sweep it under the rug, isn't it? Like, uh, I'll just go on to the next chapter. But don't do that. Let, let yourself marinate in this chapter. And, and it's, it's real life stuff. When we look around, we know there's evil in the world, right? We see it all the time. And we see it here. But we also know there's wonderful things going on in the world. Did you know that people are accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ at a faster rate than ever before in all of history? Now, this is not happening in the United States, but it's happening in the world. It's happening in other countries outside. And, and we could turn it around here, church, because we could look different. What are a few truths to hold on to as we, as we go to a time of worship? If this has been... Wow, that's a lot, Steve. Maybe take a picture of this slide. These are three truths. I don't know anybody that would disagree with these truths. These are, these are three truths you can just camp out on. First one, God loves the world and sent Jesus to redeem us. That is the truth of the Bible. Another sobering truth, and we get it here, and I think it's significant. It's at the, almost at the very end of your Bible that we get this, because it's a reminder that Satan wants to destroy us. In John 10.10, Jesus highlights this. He says, the thief, speaking of Satan, wants to come and kill, steal, and destroy us. 
but I came that you might have life and you might have it uh, abundantly. And then the, the third thing we can camp out on is the goal of God's wrath. This is what we learned today. The goal of God's wrath is a good one. It's a be- benevolent one. It's that we would repent and believe in him. And then we get to spend eternity with him in the new holy city, the new Jerusalem, heaven on earth. And we're going to get to that in a few weeks in the book of Revelation. So as, as we wrap up today and go to a time of prayer, I want to read one more quote to you. It's not going to be a slide. So you can close your eyes if you want and start entering your mind, your, your body, your spirit into a time of worship because this is, this is something we want to respond to. This, this is a message out of the, out of the revelation that we want to we internalize. So let me read this quote to you and then uh, we'll pray and worship. It's by N.T. Wright for those who want to know. Um, It starts out with repentance, and this is what N.T. Wright says. Repentance is a radical, heartfelt, gut-wrenching turning away from idols which promise delight but provide death. God longs for that kind of repentance. Let's pray together. Church, as, as we open our eyes to the deceptions of the evil one, and the deceptions of the evil world, let us, let us listen to, to what we learn today, that repentance is, is a good thing. We need to turn away. We need to repent, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, turn to him in a time of worship.